Imagine a skyscraper in place of Grand Central Terminal, or construction crews gutting the interior of the famed Radio City Music Hall. Good morning, I'm George Polarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. It's been five decades since New York City Mayor Robert Wagner signed a measure to help preserve the city's history. A new exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York explores the roots and impact of the city's landmarks law. It's called Saving Place, 50 Years of New York City Landmarks. The exhibit is complemented by a book of the same name. The guys behind both are Donald Albrecht, the Museum of the City of New York's Curator for Architecture and Design, and Andrew Dulcart, the Director of the Historic Preservation Program at Columbia University. I sat down with Donald and Andrew after touring their exhibit for a chat. Donald kicked off the conversation. The Museum of the City of New York does uh, exhibitions that oftentimes celebrate major anniversaries in the history of the metropolis. And it seemed to us that the landmark law has had an enormous impact on the city, and that it's involved wide groups of people, individuals, civic organizations, and we thought it'd be a good idea to assess the impact of the law and the history of the law in an exhibition. Andrew, can you imagine New York City without the landmarks law? I don't think I want to imagine New York without the landmarks law. I think that many of the things that we treasure in the city today, whole neighborhoods, individual buildings, would, would be gone. Just the first thing that the Landmarks Commission did when, when it was established at the very first public hearing was they heard buildings that were endangered. And two buildings that we love today and take for granted today, the old Astor Library that's now the public theater and the... Quaker Meeting House on Gramercy Park, which is now the Brotherhood Synagogue, both of those had been sold to developers and were about to be demolished. Uh, And they wouldn't be here if it weren't for the Landmarks Commission, and that's true of many, many other buildings. I think a lot of people associate the Landmarks Movement to the demolition of the original Penn Station, the Penn Station that was demolished to make room for Madison Square Garden. But your exhibit takes us much earlier than that. Right. New York City is a city of great change. And it's been, it was remarked on by people like Mark Twain in the 19th century that it was a tear-it-down, kind of build-it-new city. And at the time of the consolidation in the 1890s, that l- launches enormous changes in New York, skyscrapers and subways and bridges, and all things are being built, and the city is really going through great transformations. And so it's really as a way to manage that change that the preservation movement starts really at the end of the 19th century, and there are battles over City Hall, there are battles over St. John's Chapel. So actually it starts really with sort of the big changes in New York. So it's a, it's a much longer history than the destruction of Pennsylvania Station in the 1960s. Right. There was talk, Andrew, of demolishing City Hall, the City Hall that we know and love today. Yes, well, City Hall was small. It's an early 19th century building, and as the city was growing, especially after consolidation when when, uh, New York City merged with Brooklyn and the towns and villages uh, in Queens and Staten Island, that it it had outgrown City Hall, so it was obsolete. So why not build, tear it down, and build a huge new City Hall? And fortunately for us, the city decided to build ancillary buildings, Uh, and City Hall was preserved. And I think it's one of the great things about New York is that the government of the largest city and one of the wealthiest and most powerful cities in the world runs out of this small, early 19th century building. Now, as we mentioned, it wasn't until the 1960s that we had a landmarks law in place. Why did it take so long to get to that point? Well, I think there's 
a big change that happens in New York in the 19 after the Second World War in the 1950s. The, there had been pent-up demand for new construction during the war and during the Depression when there wasn't much construction. New York City enters a major period as an international cultural capital and a business capital after the Second World War ends in 1945. And there's an enormous amount of new building that is happening. And that new building is in a new style of steel and glass office buildings. So the old buildings not only are maybe obsolete because of the function, but also the style maybe isn't loved anymore. And so there's a huge pressure after the war and major, major buildings, the Produce Exchange and other buildings, Grand Central Terminal, sorry, not Grand Central Terminal, uh, Pennsylvania Station. There's a battle over Carnegie Hall. The, the pressure really builds after the Second World War. And finally, 20 years after the war ends, the landmark law is passed. There was a violinist who was very much involved with saving Carnegie Hall, right? Yes. Uh, Isaac Stern leads the charge. And the problem with Carnegie Hall is the building of Lincoln Center where the Philharmonic is going to move. So what would you do with the building? And he argues it's the acoustics in the building and the historic nature of all the performances that had happened there that it should be saved. And he leads very much the charge. So here we are in the 1960s. The original Penn Station is being demolished. Who is leading the charge for a landmarks law, Andrew? Well, the landmarks has really always been a grassroots effort, and it was citizens of the city. It was people in the neighborhoods, especially in Brooklyn Heights and Greenwich Village, uh, were, were really instrumental in pressuring the city for a landmarks law. Uh, architects were very involved. Uh, it was architects who were picketing at Penn Station about, against its demolition. So it was really a, a movement that grew from a demand from the citizens of New York. But it wasn't the demolition of Penn Station, the original Penn Station, that got the mayor, Robert Wagner, to sign the law, right, Donald? It was the destruction of the Brokaw Mansion, which is at 79th and 5th Avenue. And it was stealthily torn down. There was a huge outcry in the press and among the public. And that was the building that really convinced Wagner he should sign the law. Now, the exhibit walks us through this whole timeline. That's how you arranged it. Yes, well, we, we, one of our aims was to show that landmarking had a long history, that the preservation issues have a long history in New York, and that it didn't just begin with Penn Station. So we begin in the late 19th century uh, with a lot of very important issues about the changing city. We look at uh, pre-World War II uh, efforts at, at preservation, some successful, some not successful, and a lot of issues in the 1960s dealing with urban renewal uh, and, and uh, other development issues uh, in New York. We talk about Penn Station, of course, uh, and the Brokaw houses. And then finally, the passage of the law. And then the show goes on to talk about what the repercussions were after the passage of the law and bringing it up to today. But another thing that we really were very strong in our belief that was very important uh, to talk about was the fact that preservation is not about creating a museum city. It's not about antiquarianism. It's about creating a dynamic city where the buildings of the past uh, are important to the present and to a dynamic future in the city. And it's about new buildings and old buildings as well. So we have a, a substantial section about new architecture in historic districts or related to individual landmarks, that landmark does not freeze buildings, but helps to create a really dynamic city that we all love. You use the Jefferson Market Courthouse in Greenwich Village as an example of a successful repurposing of a historic structure. 
I think one of the things that we take for granted today is the, the adaptive use of buildings, that we can take an old building and that we can turn it into a new use. And this happens all the time uh, in New York. Just think of all of the old industrial loft buildings that are now uh, residential buildings. But in the 1960s and 1970s, this was a radical idea. And the Jefferson Market Library was in Greenwich Village was preserved because of citizen action before there was a Landmarks Commission. And this small group... Uh, in Greenwich Village was determined to save the building, and they persuaded the New York Public Library to to turn it into a, a branch library. And it was hugely successful, uh, both from a design point of view, with, with the architect Giorgio Cavalieri hired to convert the building, and as a library for use by the residents of Greenwich Village. Donald, after Mayor Robert Wagner signed the Landmarks Law, buildings were still being demolished. What was going on in the city? Well, there wasn't a lot of interest in modern or art deco buildings. Uh, The modern era of the 20s and 30s was still too new. And so Joseph Urban's Ziegfeld Theater on 6th Avenue was torn down. And it wasn't until the 1980s that the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building were designated. So it always takes a certain amount of time. This is why you don't designate anything until it's 30 years old. It's felt that you should have sort of the advantage of history to see if the building is being talked about amongst architectural historians, whether it's being referenced in schools, whether it's being talked about in the newspapers, whether it's part of popular culture. It takes a certain amount of time to get distance. And in 1965, the buildings of the 20s and 30s weren't that greatly valued. Also, the Singer Building, the tallest skyscraper in the world, briefly, when it was built, was torn down. It was a beautiful building. You have a photo of it in the exhibit. We have a wonderful, actually, rendering. We have a large collection of renderings of buildings here by a man named Eusen Hawley. And so it's one of the great things in the exhibition that you can see what this Singer Building by Ernest Flagg looked like, and that was torn down. One thing we haven't even talked about yet is what is the criteria to have a structure designated a landmark, Andrew? Well, the law says that a building needs to be 30 years old and of architectural, historical, or cultural significance. And that's a pretty broad definition, and I think it's important that it's written in this broad way because our ideas change, our tastes change, just as Donald said, Uh, Art Deco buildings, for example, were not appreciated uh, at the time the commission was established, but then they became among the most revered buildings uh, in New York. The Landmarks Law allows for the designation designation of individual buildings. It also allows for the designation of historic districts, and these are areas that have a sense of place uh, to them. And they can be small, they can be just a few buildings, or they can be virtually entire neighborhoods like Brooklyn Heights. And the law... As it was amended uh, about a decade after it was initially passed, also allows for the designation of publicly accessible interiors, like many of the Broadway theaters, and for uh, city-owned public space, like Central Park and Prospect Park. Good thing for that interior designation, because they once wanted to gut Radio City Music Hall, didn't they? Radio City Music Hall is one of those great examples of, of something that would not be here if it were not for the fact that the Landmarks Commission stepped in. Rockefeller Center wanted to gut it uh, and turn it into office space, and the Landmarks Commission chose to hold a public hearing, and it got international uh, press. People were writing in from all over the world in support of preserving a radio city. Rockefeller Center insisted that it could not be used in a profitable way, 
And because it was saved, it's now an incredible gold mine. Uh, it's incredibly profitable, and it's been restored, and it looks spectacular, and it's one of the great theaters of the world. Yeah, what was happening was the result of changing modes of transportation in the country from trains to airplanes and automobiles. Movies were kind of in the decline. And so what were you going to do with this, what was once a movie palace with stage shows, but now it's purely stage shows, and it's very, 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 very successful. Talking about movie palaces, I think it was a movie palace that you feature in the exhibit that was destroyed with Gloria Swanson standing in the midst of the ruins. It's the Roxy Theater, uh, which she actually, in 1927, she was the first, she was the star of the first movie at the Great Roxy Movie Palace, and it was torn down in the 60s, and she's standing there amidst the ruins, and it was photographed for Life magazine. So it's that kind of popular buildup that's happening at the end of the period, at the end of the Second World War, the beginning of that 50s, 60s period. That's really where the pressure is building as these great monuments of New York are being torn down. Andrew mentioned Brooklyn Heights as a historic district. Brooklyn Heights was the city's first ever historic district, right? right? It was the first ever historic district, and then since then, there have been many others. Uh, Some are very large, like the Upper East Side, and some are actually very, very small. And in some of the districts, uh, they're not all dolled up like Brooklyn Heights is in many ways. Sometimes they're in different states of renovation and repair, and you can see how they're in transformation, how they're evolving as historic districts. Give me an example of one. Sometimes in Bedford-Stuyvesant, some people have restored the building. Some people are still not doing that yet. Uh, We visited Staten Island, where there are a few streets, where one is really beautifully restoration hardwired up, and the rest are more ordinary. So there's a mix, and you see that evolution in the districts. What weighs more in the eyes of the Landmarks Preservation Commission? Do you think it's architectural or historical significance, Andrew? I think that the commission has generally tended towards uh, architectural significance. I think that in the early years, as the commission was getting established, many of the people who were advocating for designations were architects and architectural historians. and that So architecture has often been a key element. Age has also been an element. So most of the city's very early buildings, the 17th and 18th century buildings, are designated. I think that the biggest challenge facing the the Landmarks Commission, or one of the biggest challenges, is how to deal with the issue of buildings of significance for cultural reasons. Uh, The commission has been very hesitant to designate buildings of cultural importance. So Uh, There are a a group of buildings that have been designated for their importance in African-American history, like Louis Armstrong's house, but there are no landmarks that represent Asian uh, history in New York or Hispanic history or LGBT history, and this is a really important issue that the Landmarks Commission uh, needs to, to, to take a look at in the future. They have, though, Donald, preserve religious institutions in New York City, and they have the legal right to do so, correct? The exteriors, yes. The exteriors are, but not the interiors. Give me an example of an exterior that has been saved. Well, the, 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 the commission has designated many religious institutions, uh, and many of them have been beautifully restored. St. Patrick's Cathedral is now being uh, restored. A central synagogue was, was beautifully restored, uh, and, and many, many others. The way the law is written, it is um, within the scope of the Landmarks Commission to designate the exteriors of religious institutions, both as individual landmarks and within historic districts, but the law does not permit the designation of 
interiors that are in religious use because the commission very carefully does not want to get involved with issues of doctrine about whether an altar should be removed or not removed. So um, many, many religious institutions are landmarks on the exterior. There is one house of worship that you feature in the exhibit that they did not allow to build over. They wanted to build over it. The church said, we want to build over it. It'll give us money. But the Landmarks Commission said, uh-uh. Well, one of the, the, the biggest preservation battles of, of the uh, latter part of the 20th century was about St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church on Park Avenue. Uh, St. Bartholomew's was a very early designation uh, designed by Bertram Goodyear, one of the great American architects of the early decades of the 20th century. And there was a proposal to tear down the community house, which is a landmark, and build a tower that would cantilever over the dome of St. Bartholomew's. And when the Landmarks Commission is faced with new design, they have to decide whether the new proposal is appropriate. That's the legal word. Was this proposal appropriate to the landmark? And the commission said no, tearing down the community house and building a, a building that cantilevered over St. Bartholomew's was not appropriate. Uh, there was a lawsuit, and the courts ruled that the Landmarks Commission had the right to designate religious institutions, and it really gave a firm foundation for the preservation of, of buildings in religious use. This was the battle, the battle of tall buildings atop smaller landmarks. This was the battle for Grand Central Terminal. And, this and was a huge battle that went was, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Well, this was the, the big battle that goes to the Supreme Court, and in 1978, the Supreme Court says that it is constitutional to designate certain landmarks, and that sets a precedent that really has national significance. And there were two schemes that the architect Marcel Breuer proposed. One would have destroyed the concourse, and the other would have preserved the concourse but torn off the facades of the building. Why did that battle get so heated? Why did it go all the way to the Supreme Court? I think the memory of the ter- of the destruction of Pennsylvania Station was still very fresh because it was just a few years earlier. The battle really starts in the late 60s. And I think that so there was the freshness of that battle. We were not going to lose another one of the great train stations. And also I think just the urban ensemble of that area was so significant that to not have a building on top of it was a joke. I think also the commission felt that they could win the case with Grand Central Terminal. With a lesser building, there could have been more questioning, but with a building of that significance, especially the beauty of the room, the the, the centrality of it in the urban ensemble of Park Avenue, and the memory of Pennsylvania Station made it all a winnable argument. So essentially that win gave the Landmarks Commission the teeth that it really needed, is that right? that's right. And that's why we use, in the timeline, we use 1978 as the end of the third chapter in the timeline and the beginning of the later chapter. Who have been the harshest critics of the Landmarks Law over the years? Well, I I think that there has been criticism from certain aspects of the real estate community. I, I don't think it's a universal uh, there are certainly a lot of people in the real estate world who have profited enormously from uh, landmarks and the reuse of landmarks, but the real estate board in general has not been uh, a huge supporter because, after all, a uh, place like Greenwich Village or Brooklyn Heights, where real estate values are very high, uh, somebody could come and tear down lots of buildings and make uh, an, a significant profit uh, from it. So I think that what's important, though, is that it's a balance, that development 
uh, occurs in many, many places uh, in, in the city. And in certain areas of the city, the development is more closely regulated, like in historic districts. Talking about someone who can come in and tear down buildings and build back up, let's talk about Robert Moses, mm-hmm. because he has a place in this story. Yeah, well, Robert Moses, he figures in the story a lot. We chose in our exhibition, because we had the Museum of City and Arcade on a big Robert Moses show some years ago, we chose to focus on his uh, the Brooklyn Battery Bridge, which was vociferously fought against by even Eleanor Roosevelt, at the time the president's wife. And it would have torn down much of Castle Clinton, and in the end it turned out to be a tunnel instead of a bridge. Can't even imagine a bridge down in that area. Right. Well, at that time, you still came to New York via ship. And so that famous view as you enter New York Harbor and you see the kind of prow of lower Manhattan would have been destroyed. Today, one wonders you only really see that view from the Staten Island Ferry. You don't see it much anymore. It isn't as prominent anymore. What role did the press play early on when all of this was playing out and there was this big push for landmark preservation? The press was crucial, and particularly one person, and that was Ada Louise Huxtable at the New York Times. She was the first architecture critic, and she also was an editorial writer. And what was interesting about Ada Louise was she was a passionate lover of old buildings and the role that old buildings and the dynamism of old buildings, but she also was a great proponent for contemporary architecture. And I think so she brought these two things together about how a city could be a great city by both preserving buildings and by building well. Uh, and, and in her articles and in her editorials, she was, had a passion for preservation, and it couldn't be ignored. It was in the New York Times. And I can't think of any other individual writing about preservation who had a greater influence on first getting the law passed and then on the progress of preservation after that. I mean, she had the ability to frame the debate in popular terms, and she was a marvelous writer. So she could do both and really get people to listen to her. You capture some of her words in this exhibit, don't you? Yes, there's a famous quote, uh, something I'll paraphrase it, will be known less by the monuments be built than by the monuments we destroy. We have a photograph of Ada Louise Huxtable in the exhibition, and there she is looking very prim and proper, and she's holding a 19-cent Bic pen. Mm-hmm. And that 19-cent pen was the most powerful tool. What are among the lesser-known landmarks? Of course, we know some of the big ones in New York City, but what are some of the lesser-known ones, Andrew? Well, I think one of the great things about the Landmarks Commission is that they have designated the great buildings, you know, the Chrysler Building and City Hall and the Empire State Building and Brooklyn Heights, Uh, but they've also gone all over the city uh, and have designated buildings that most people probably don't know unless you pick up a book that has pictures of of landmarks. Uh, My favorite landmark building that that very few people know is called the Edgehill Church of Spite and Dival, and it's uh, 1880s, small country church just below Riverdale in the Bronx, Uh, and it's an extraordinary masterpiece uh, that very few people know, but the, the Landmarks Commission is out there discovering uh, important buildings in, in all boroughs. The commission has designated trees, lighthouses, uh, street clocks, uh, and even the street pattern of New Amsterdam in Lower Manhattan. Trees, huh? Did not know that. <laughs> there, there are two trees that have been designated. Uh, the Magnolia Grandiflora, which, was a, it, which is a symbol of the revitalization of Bedford-Stuyvesant, 
and a weeping beech tree in Flushing in Queens, which sadly has died, and there's now a replacement tree. New York City is a leader in many things. Is the city also a leader in landmarks preservation? Has it been a leader in landmarks preservation? I think New York is a leader in preservation. New York was not among the first cities to have a preservation law. Uh, there were laws in in, uh, in Charleston and, and in New Orleans and other cities uh, before that. And even in New York State, there were five municipalities that had preservation laws before New York's. But New York, when New York passed its law, it was a comprehensive and very strong law. And it has, has since its passage, uh, really been a, a beacon for for other places uh, looking to create preservation ordinances. How frequently does the commission meet to decide on landmarks? Well, the commission meets generally twice a month, uh, but much of the commission's work is not designating landmarks and holding public hearings on potential landmarks, but on uh, regulating the the buildings that are are already landmarks. Uh, Much of the regulation goes on at the staff level, but there are some major projects that come before Uh, the commissioners at a public hearing, uh, and those public hearings take place twice a month. Donald, what's your favorite New York City landmark? Uh, One of the ones I think, other than the great buildings like the Chrysler Building, I think the the evolution we've seen at the public theater is very interesting, where it's retained its architectural facade and its architectural character, and it's gone through two generations of changes. Once when it was first converted to the theater, that's there now, and recently a new addition that is very contemporary and very modern and actually really works well with the facade with a series of disabled ramps that lead up. So it's, it, it shows how you can retain the character and you can change the function, but you can do it over time. You can't just do it once. You can do it twice and three times. That, I think, elasticity in the building is, I think, quite remarkable. And it remains a vibrant theater complex. Ultimately, what is your hope for visitors to this exhibit and folks who read your book? I think we're trying to show that that the Landmarks Commission is possibly a component of New York that allows for a dynamic mix of old and new in our city, and also that the history of the law is much older than you think, that it starts at the end of the 19th century, and it involves not just city government, but average activist citizens, newspapers, journalists, historians, civic groups, that it's a lot of people coming together to forge the landmarks and the preservation in New York City. I think, for me, I want people to come away saying that there's been 50 years of landmarking, and much of the city that we like today, that that citizens of New York love in their city, are because of landmarking, and we shouldn't take it for granted that it's been around for 50 years, and, and sometimes we forget uh, that, that the commission is there and the, the important role that the Landmarks Commission has played in New York, and that it is a movement that's grown out of citizen advocacy and that citizens need to continue to be vigilant and advocate for uh, preservation and good design in New York. And also that it remains controversial. We did a symposium the day the show opened. We had over 800 people at the symposium. Over 100 people were watching it live streaming. And we had a variety of different voices. You know, we had people from the real estate board. We had preservationists. We had different points of view, architects, that were talking about the value of the landmark law and what they thought were maybe not good things that were happening. So the mixing of the voices as a forum, we want to bring that out, that it is a discussable issue still today.
Yeah, I guess, you know, it comes down to the argument, preservation versus modernization, and where do you draw the balance, as you said? How how much memory can we, how much change do we want in the city? You know, can we have a modern global city that does preserve its landmarks? These are all issues, and we're doing a wide series of public programs throughout the run of the show that will debate the value of the law. I I, I will say, though, that, that I don't think it's a question of the old or the new, it's a question of both. And that, that preservation, as I said before, it's not about being antiquarians. It's about saving old buildings to be dynamic parts of, of, of our city. And that does not preclude new architecture as well as preserving old architecture. I wouldn't want to see a city that was all 19th century buildings, and I wouldn't want to see a city that was all 21st century buildings. I want to see a dynamic city that combines all of these things together uh, in an exciting way. Andrew, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Donald, thank you. Thank you very much. Donald Albrecht is the Museum of the City of New York's Curator for Architecture and Design. Andrew Dulcart is the Director of the Historic Preservation Program at Columbia University. Their exhibit, Saving Place, 50 Years of New York City Landmarks, is on display at the Museum of the City of New York through September 13th. Their book of the same name is out now from Monticelli Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.